If you're not here for announcements, and I know it's like redemption with DSC, a lot of you weren't. Um, you're checking in kids, unloading the van, rushing down Osuna, angry at construction. Um, my name is Carlos. Uh, you guys can call me Los. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor at Redemption Church. Redemption Church was Desert Springs' first church plant sent out. We are in the bustling metropolis of Rio Rancho. Um, and we've been there for a year. And actually, last Sunday was our one-year mark of being in Rio Rancho. Uh, it was, it's been a blessing. It's been an adventure. It's been incredibly hard, incredibly joyful, incredibly amazing to see what God is doing there. And so um, Ryan is up there um, preaching. And so you guys got stuck with me. Um, so that's how we roll. Um, I am grateful to be back at Desert Springs. Um, Desert Springs is the place I walked, in, walked into 10 years ago. A hungover college student wanted to hear more about this Jesus that uh, some men in my life were sharing, talking about. Wanted to, they were attending here, walked in, hungover, wanted to learn more about Jesus. Again, a year ago, got sent out as an elder to go plant Redemption Church in New Mexico. There was a core group of families that were sent with us and... Um, for all of us, Desert Springs will always be um, like a, it will be a home for us, like a home for us. It'll um, feel like college students that we get sent out into the, the real world of church planting, wherever that is, and come back. And my cubicle is now a gym. I don't know. Um, but one of the reasons we love DSC is first the people. We loved, I love just seeing familiar faces when I get to come back here on Sunday and um, faces that I really grew up with in a lot of ways as a Christian. Um, but we also, I like to come back and I remember God's grace in my life at Desert Springs. Seeing, learning, hearing the great deep truths of God, being challenged by them. Probably one of the most amazing things I learned at Desert Springs as I began growing in my faith was that theology Digging deep into the truths of who God is, as revealed by the scriptures, matter. Theology matters. Deep study matters. It's not just, it just doesn't matter. It's critical for our life and our well-being. It's critical for how we worship. It's critical for how we view life and events that happen to us and around us. So, coming back here, I figured we're going to talk some theology today. Maybe you're in here right now, and you're thinking, theology? Theology? I came in here to get something useful, and you're going to talk to me about theology? Maybe you're thinking, my marriage is falling apart, Los. My kids are out of control. I just got the test back from the doctor. I need something to help me. I need something to lift me up. And we're going to talk theology. Give me something that helps. Maybe you're thinking, theology, hmm. That's what those seminary kids do, right? Get the big, thick books. You start a blog and you're angry all the time on it. 
And some of that's true. Reality is there are some that love theology for the gain of knowledge and the ability to hold it over others. Theology, though, what I hope we see today. Theology that when it affects our heads, our hearts, and our hands, when it affects how we think, how we feel, and what we do, changes everything. It changes everything in our lives. And one of the biggest, most freeing theological truths that God saturated my heart with while, we were, while I was here at Desert Springs and when I'm praying as the preaching pastor redemption we're doing there, that one of these truths that we can only begin to tiny bit of grasp because of our finite minds when we try to grasp and realize the infinite is that God is great and we are not. God is great and we are not. Or a better way to put it, maybe more of a theological precise way. God is sovereign. We are not. God is sovereign. We are not. And this is one of those truths that we, some of you guys may be going, amen. Talk about sovereignty. But we were, all of us, everyone in this room rebels against it daily. Not in a confessional way. We don't sing a song, God, I am sovereign and you are not. And you can see why I preach and not sing. We don't do it in a confessional way, but in a practical way. See, our beliefs are not just what we say, but our beliefs in a lot of ways work themselves out in what we do. We can sing of God's greatness on Sunday morning and rebel against it Sunday afternoon. How, Los? How do we do that? How do we rebel? Tell me. How many of you guys got frustrated on the way down here because of the traffic? How many of you guys have got caught by this light right here? When I worked here, I remember this light. You're trying to turn left on a soon off Vista del Norte, you get caught by it, you're like, oh, we're here about 10 minutes now. How many of you got frustrated because the kids weren't getting ready on time this morning? Any morning. I wouldn't know that. My kids get ready all the time perfectly and then recite Latin to me as I, as I prepare and sing hymns. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> Usually things are thrown at me or thrown at each other and hymns are the furthest thing away. <laughs> what about what's going on in your life right now that has you stressed and worried? What are you losing sleep over? What are you constantly thinking about and worried about? Finances, health, marriage, relationships. These are all common. And these are all ways in which we show disbelief in God's sovereignty. These are all ways that the sin of disbelief, the sin of us seeking control and sovereignty over our lives play themselves out. You see, worry is sin. Stress is sin. Frustration at the person that just cut you off is sin. 
because they in themselves are a denying of God's authority and control over the world. They are also the fruits of our own desires to control and have authority in our lives and the world around us. Ultimately, these lies that we are sovereign, that we are in control, that form in worry, stress, frustration, they seek to enslave us. So what I hope we see today is understanding the greatness of God not only humbles us, but it frees us. It frees us from the burden of worry, of stress, of frustration. It frees us from the false God, the idol of control that seeks to enslave us by telling us we're really in charge. It encourages us. It encourages us, inspires us to see ourselves in a bigger narrative than the small little one we think is so big. We see ourselves in a bigger God story instead of the small me story. Encourage us and excites us to be part of that big story as a bit player for his glory. I want us to see that when we treasure the theology of God's greatness, his sovereignty over our lives, we are able then to be freed from seeking the control of our own. So I want us to see how this plays out in a specific passage. So you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. While you're doing that, I'll give you a little context. If you don't have Bibles, there's Bibles. I think they're all over the place. And I think if you don't have a Bible, you can take that one home. If I'm wrong, I won't be here next week. So. <laughs> Redemption Church will get a bill. So Isaiah is a prophetic book. Isaiah is a prophet. He's a messenger from God to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom that includes Jerusalem. Isaiah is writing to people during a time that they are filled with doubt and anxiety of being abandoned by God. They're worried. They're, they're seeking control. They're seeking control of their own life, their own way of worship. They are doubting God's goodness and his love for them. They are rebelling. Isaiah is writing to warn them as a messenger from God. In fact, the first words of Isaiah in chapter 6 give us an idea of the exact time of this passage and will help see us how this passage shows us why God's greatness is so freeing. The first line is, in the year that King Uzziah died. We kind of read that, we get past it. Okay, Uzziah, it's a crazy name for a king. We, we might not think too much of that. We might go, okay, King Uzziah died. That's giving us the timeline. That's giving us kind of the rough general. We know that's happened. Why is Isaiah putting that? Why is he putting that as a marker? Well, if you look... Back to Second Chronicles 26, if you start doing some research, start thinking through where is this timeline in the biblical narrative, you see who Uzziah was. Uzziah was a king that took over when he was 16 years old. Uzziah followed the Lord. Uzziah was blessed by the Lord, found favor by the Lord, and Uzziah's king, kingdom grew, his military power grew, the economics the economy grew. In fact, it says in, in uh, 2 Chronicles 26 that 
Egypt, the borders of Egypt had heard of Uzziah's greatness. And so he's a king for people reminiscent of, of David. He is famous when it says his name has reached the borders of Egypt. That means Uzziah is going viral. People are seeing him, hearing about him, knowing him. Well, all this went to Uzziah's head. Started seeing his greatness as power usually our sinful natures take it and get corrupted and pride grows within us and Isaiah decides to go into the temple, worship God in his own way. He seeks control. He seeks to be sovereign over the way God is to be worshipped. Only the priests were to go in. Isaiah says, I'm going to go in. I'm going to go take care of I'm going to go worship God. That's, I'm Uzziah. Isn't it better just for me, the one that's always got favor by God, the kingdom's expanding. I'm going to go and worship the way I, I think it should be done. He gets in there. The priests are warning him, get out of there. This isn't for you to do. This is for just for us. This is how God has commanded it. This is how God has sovereignty over how he is worshipped, how he has... And Uzziah goes in, boom. The Lord gives Uzziah leprosy. Uzziah would be weakened. If you don't know what leprosy is, it's a sick um, disease that basically just eats away your body. Basically leaves you to be nothing. It's away your skin, it's away your organs, it's away everything. It kills you. Uzziah dies of leprosy. And so for the people, they're just coming out of this time. Isaiah, as a prophet of God, is just coming out of this time of a great king humbled and killed by leprosy. There's fear. There's worry. What's the future going to hold? We just started to see this thing get built again. Now what's going to go on? So the people are worried. Isaiah himself might even be worried. As the great king Isaiah has died. And that's where we pick up in Isaiah 6. See, Isaiah went, Isaiah being the messenger of God, was going to be going before people who saw, saw their great king die. And Isaiah was about to get a vision of the true king, of the true king of kings. So let's look at chapter 6. Read the first seven verses. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So there's things we're going to see from Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to get a little... I'm going to read a little more of chapter 6 in a minute, but four things I want us to see. God is great in majesty. God is great in grace. God is great so we can rest. God is great so we can go. You don't have to fill those in right now. Go, They'll be up on the screen as we go. 
Verse 1, though, God is great in majesty. See, Isaiah was a prophet. He was highly regarded. He was the, he was the dude. He was like, that's Isaiah, man. I got a spiritual question. I'm going to go talk to Isaiah. Isaiah walked by. He like, dude, Isaiah, it's Isaiah. It's the Holy One. People kind of act a little, a little nicer. Probably didn't cuss as much when they're around Isaiah. I know, I'm a pastor. I get that. And he's taken up before the throne. This holy man regarded among the people. And here's the thing, in an instant, any thought, any belief, that Isaiah was a holy man, that he was great, that he was anything special in Isaiah's mind was blasted away. It was gone. Because he was before holiness and majesty. I mean, just think about what he's seen. He's taken before this throne. The smoke is filling the temple. Seraphim, these giant angel creatures, they're not, they're not even able to look at the Lord. They cover their, their feet with their other wings to show respect and reverence. And here's the thing. These aren't like the little, little, you know, little fat baby Cupid things that we think angels are. You know, they're, oh, they're so cute. No, these, these things are big. These things... We, I think John Piper put it well, he said, we would worship them if they showed up on the scene right now. How do we know that? Because when they speak, heaven shakes. When they speak, heaven shakes. And they can't look at the Lord. They have their feet covered before the Lord. They are crying out just his holiness. Holy, holy, holy. They're saying he is unlike any other. He is, his power is unmatched. His greatness is unmatched. He is set apart. He is unlike anything else. He is the creator of all things. It's a holiness. Set apart, unmatched. See, many of us think, maybe we've thought this way. You know, when I die and I get before the Lord, I got some questions to ask him. I'm going to ask him some things. I want to know why this happened. I want to know what what was up with this. No, you're not. No, you're not. We're going to be like Isaiah. We're going to be like, His power and might. Isaiah didn't have any entitlement issues at that moment. Isaiah wasn't, what about me? What about my rights? What about my desires? Instead, Isaiah gets there. He sees God, holiness, majesty, power, greatness. 
All of a sudden, he's starting to see himself in the proper light. Sinful. Rebel. And all of a sudden, he has this moment where he's like, rut row. He goes, I'm in trouble. His words are, woe is me. Woe is me. In other words, I'm in big trouble because I'm a sinner and I'm a rebel. And this is how it always plays out in the Bible when God's greatness, his godness is revealed to us. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus has his disciples on a boat. Jesus is asleep. Storm comes. Now these are fishermen. Some of these are fishermen and they're freaking out. So you know it's a bad storm. When the dudes from the deadliest catch are freaking out about the storm, you know it's bad. I'm a New Mexican, so I, I don't, I'm scared of big, big bodies of water. Like the real grande is mighty enough for me. But these guys are freaking out. They wake up, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus we're, we're about to die. You, you don't seem to care right now. I don't know if you've noticed, the typhoon is coming down, the waves. This is it, man. Jesus looks at him, gets up. <sighs> Stretch. Shh. Silence. It's just quiet. And not just, just the rain stop, because I mean... Here in New Mexico, it starts raining, like literally probably three minutes after it starts raining, you go, quiet, and it's done. And, and you could time it right here in Albuquerque, right? But the sea stops. Now, I don't know if it's like physics or geometry or whatever, but it's, you get that kind of energy going in the water. It takes a little while for that to calm down usually. But that calms down instantly. The weather, the sea, obey Jesus. And all he says is, hey, Knock it off. Disciples, response. The disciples are not going, that was awesome. Did you see that? Do it again. Do it again. Can you do some snow? I want some snow. They're in the corner. I mean, Jesus is over here. Like, Shh. And they're like, dude. Who, who are we on the boat with, man? They're afraid. Like, who is this guy? Dude, did you just see? He went, shh. And it went, and it went, shh. They're scared. There's fear. There's trembling of greatness. And they're starting, they're start, there's a little bit of a uh-oh moment in them. Whenever God's godness, his majesty is revealed to us, our smallness, our finiteness comes out and there's fear, there's trembling. Because you see, for Isaiah, he's lifted up. He has seen the seraphim. He has seen the threshold. He's seen smoke. He's seen the Lord high and lifted up. At that moment, he's not thinking, how are we going to recover after Isaiah's death? How are we going to go on after that great king has died? He ain't, he's not thinking about King Isaiah at all anymore. He's not thinking about a great king. He's thinking about the king. He's not worried about what's going to happen now because he's, he's like, 
That's what he sees. But here's the thing we need to understand. God's majesty alone, if you haven't noticed, is not comforting. We don't rest in just God's majesty because if it's just majesty, we are like Isaiah and we just say, woe is me, I am undone. Majesty alone is not comforting. That is why we must understand God's greatness and sovereignty And majesty comes with his grace, love, and mercy. So that's the second one. God is great in grace. God is great in grace. See, majesty without grace is terrifying. It's not comforting to us because we are sinners and we're rebels. Because God's majesty and grace, his kingliness, remind us of our rebelliousness. And that alone is not something we just get a little snuggy with and we just get, oh, that's so great. I'm an awful sinner and I'm before a holy God. The thing that comforts us is his greatness comes with his gracefulness. We have to have both. The gospel, the story of redemption is a story of both. It's not either or. See, we we live in a world that wants lots of grace. Lots of grace. We want to hear messages that are just about grace. Just, just tell me how much God loves me. Tell him how much. This, I love the songs where it says, you know, Jesus died because he couldn't live without me. Gag. You don't understand the grace unless you understand the majesty. You didn't drop your pencil and Jesus picked it up for you. And you're, oh, thank you. You, me, we were like Isaiah, undone, trembling before a holy God, unable to save ourselves, deserving nothing but punishment, nothing but righteous judgment. And God's grace his love, his sovereign grace was directed towards us. See, you can't sing amazing grace until you understand woe is me. You can't sing amazing grace until you understand woe is me. That's where Isaiah is at. He knows he has no control. He's before a king of all, and on his own, he's in trouble. And that is when one of these giant seraphims grab a coal from the altar, fly to him. Now, that would be a freaky experience in itself. 
this, this giant thing that was not looking at the Lord, wasn't looking at his feet, all of a sudden looks at you. Remember, his voice makes the, the heavens shake. Grabs a coal, he's coming towards you with a coal. You gotta think what's going on through my eyes. like, oh, what's gonna happen here? I really am undone. He's gonna kill me with a coal. Touches his lips. So Isaiah said, I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. My few are unclean lips. Touches his lips. Says, You are forgiven. Your sins are atoned for. He is forgiven. He has been given grace. He has been given that burden of his sin, the burden of his punishment before a holy man has been lifted. He is experiencing grace from God. He didn't do anything. He stood there, said, woe is me. He didn't say, God, okay, I've messed up. I'm sinful, but I promise you, you let me out of this. I'll go be your missionary. He didn't say, God, I, I, I want to give my life to you. He didn't say, hey, and we know this from John when John talks about the, this vision, this is Jesus on the throne. He didn't say, hey, powerful, holy God, you up on the throne with the smoke and these big creatures can't even look at you. Will you come into my heart? He didn't say that. He stood there just fully aware of his own desperate desperation and need and felt the forgiveness that he didn't merit, that he didn't deserve, that he did nothing to get from God. That was sovereignly given. That's Isaiah experienced the gospel. See, the good news, the gospel means good news. It's about terrifying bad news of our condition in the face of God's majesty and the amazing news that God made a way for our forgiveness because he is gracious and loving. He is holy. He is righteous. He is majestic. He is king. He is loving. He is merciful. The disciples would see this. The one that they were, they were kind of on the other side of the boat from that just calm the storm. They're like, oh my goodness, who is this guy? This powerful sovereign Lord would go and die for them on a cross. See, God is majestic and gracious these two must be ever before us if we want to understand that God is great. When we know that we cannot just see the truth that God is sovereign, but because of his goodness and love towards us, we know that it's not just his majesty, but his love and compassion towards us. It changes everything. His majesty, his holiness, his whole set-apartness becomes a comfort when we understand his grace, his love, his pursuit of us. 
See, when we know that God is for us, we can be freed from worry. We can trust him. And we cannot try to play God. We can repent of trying to play God. Ultimately, we can rest. We can rest. When we see his majesty, when we see his grace extended to us, when we see our need and his love, and we know that there is a God who is sovereign over all things, and who is loving, caring, and seeking out all things to work for our good because of his son Jesus, because of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, because of his grace extended towards us, not because we deserve it, not because we're cute and lovable, but because he is good, he is loving, he is sovereign. We can rest in that. We can rest in that. The reality is God, for a lot of us in here, that truth, this this, this theology hasn't been experienced yet, but it will. Trials are coming. Trials are coming. D.A. Carson says you are either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or about to go in one. And in those training grounds, We are refined, we are broken, we are shown his majesty and his grace, his greatness, his sovereignty is an incredibly comforting thing. Incredibly comforting. And we can rest. That's number three. God is great, so we can rest. Because here's the thing with all this. Our seeking to be in control, our seeking to guide our lives, to be sovereign over our own world, is exhausting. It's exhausting. It's fruitless and it's never ending. It's spiritually exhausting because in it, it drives us further from God. It's spiritually dangerous. It builds up our pride. It gives us the illusion that God is not needed in our lives, which is a very dangerous place to be. In fact, that's what Romans 1 is hitting on. Romans 1 says, the people... They see God's greatness magnified in his creation. But they deny it. They suppress that truth. And they make up little gods that they can control. They go after little other gods, false gods. And they live their life in a way that says, we don't need God. And God says, have at it. That is Way more scary 
them being where Isaiah was. See, Isaiah was brought to a place where he saw his need. That's God's grace. Romans 1 is saying the scariest place you could be is where God goes, go for it. And that's exhausting. Spiritually, that is the most dangerous place you can be. Physically, though, spiritually, it's dangerous. Physically, it's dangerous too. Just from your health perspective. There are many studies today that say the biggest threat to your health is stress. Is stress, is worry. I got a few things got from WebMD. And here's the thing. If you go to WebMD, that's stressful in itself. I don't recommend ever going to WebMD about anything. You go and search, I got a cough. And it's like, oh my goodness, I got three days to live. But I went to WebMD and here's what, here's what it says. 43% of all adults suffer adverse health effects from stress. So 43 of us in here right now are suffering adverse health effects from stress. 75% to 90% of all doctor's visits are for stress-related ailments and complaints. 75 to 90% of the time, we go to the doctor, it's because we're distressed. And stress is affecting our bodies. Stress can play a part in problems such as headaches, high blood pressure, heart problems, diabetes, skin conditions, asthma, arthritis, depression, and anxiety. Stress will just trigger other things and your body will just react. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, declared stress a hazard of the workplace. Stress costs American industry more than $300 billion annually. Stress. The lifetime prevalence of an emotional disorder is more than 50% often due to chronic untreated stress reactions. Let's throw theology in there. As you go wave MD, it ain't going to talk about anything about you being sovereign God, and there's a true sovereign God. Let me, just, let, me just, let me just rework one of these real quick. 75% to 90% of all doctor's office visits are for I want to be God related ailments and complaints. 43% of all adults suffer adverse health effects from thinking they are sovereign over their own lives. Our want for control costs American industry more than $300 billion annually. That's a more theological way to put it, a more right way to put it. But when we sit in the theology of God's greatness, his sovereignty over our lives, in light of his goodness and grace, we can rest. We can rest. We can be honest that we can't control tomorrow or even this minute, but we know the one who does. And we know his love and care has been directed towards us. And so whatever path he has us on, we are trusting that it's the right path. I'm part of a, uh, Redemption Church is part of a church planting network called Acts 29. 
Our president uh, for Acts 29 is Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in uh, Dallas, Texas. And he said something, I was, I was out in Houston, Texas, which is a horrible place to be. Um, golly, anyone from Houston here? I'll, I'll come pray for you. Um, well, you're here now, so there you go. But anyway, I was in Houston, and we had, a, we had kind of a regional conference for Acts 29. And he said something really profound. If you don't know Pastor uh, Matt Chandler's story, three years ago, um, almost four years ago now, he had a seizure on, on, on Thanksgiving Day. They went in, did an MRI, checked his brain, and he had a, he had a tumor. And, it, and it, it, was, it wasn't like an encapsulated tumor, it was a spreading one. And they gave him, they actually gave him three years to live, and he's three and a half years in. And his scans are all clear after surgery and chemo. But here's what he said. He said, here's what God taught me in that moment. And it's still teaching me. No one, no one dies early. No one dies early. We know that's theologically true. God's number all of our days. But that should give us rest. If we see who God is and his love for us, we felt that love in the name of Jesus and who he is, we have something better waiting for. We can be like Paul and say, hey, Christ, if, you, if God has me work here for me to do, I'm going to do it. Man, I'd rather be with him. And we can rest in whatever the doctor says. We can rest whatever the bank account says. We can rest in whatever comes our way. That was David's comfort in Psalm 8, was that this big majestic God knew him. I'm going to read Psalm 8 real quick. And I know Ryan not too long ago, was going through the Psalms. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David went out, saw the stars. And now this isn't like light pollution 2013 kind of thing where he's like, hey, one star. When you go out to like the Jemez, you get past the smoke, you get, you get out there and you look up and it's just like, <sighs> stars everywhere. He's looking up there. He, he knows God put every single star in its place. Every single star was intentionally created by God and put there. And he's thinking, and here I am, I'm not even taller than this tree next to me. Why, why are you, who am I, who are, God, you are amazing. You have created all this and you still think of me. Not just that, but you've made me in your image. You have bestowed your grace and love on me. He was blown away. And if you have any idea of the, his, the, of the Psalms, it was, it's a process. They would go up and down and be like, you're awesome. And then like three Psalms later, where'd you go? 
So it's a process. But that truth anchored him through his son trying to kill him, through rebellions. He said, God, you are majestic and lifted up, and you have set your love on me. And he could rest knowing that. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6, we sang words to it. Or we know in the confession time, we prayed it. Jesus tells us not to worry and panic. He says, God, he he takes care of the birds. He's going to take care of you. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. See, with greatness was a comfort and almost unbelievable comprehension of love. When we can grasp that we can rest in a sovereign God and see the greatness that comes with love and care, then we can respond like Isaiah. Before we get to that, Tim Chester says this. Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change, and I really recommend that book. Uh, I'll talk about it toward, at the end of this morning, but um, that's actually where a lot of the idea for this sermon and a sermon series we're going to be doing at Redemption in July has come from. Um, but Tim Chester says, we often associate the sovereignty of God with theological debates. I mean, how many of you guys, when I said sovereign, you were like thinking debate time, like, oh my goodness. But for all of us, it's a daily practical choice. For me, the issue is escapism. I have to choose between fantasy in which I'm sovereign and the real world in which God is sovereign. Between my false sovereignty and God's real sovereignty. When I feel like running away, I have to find, choose to find refuge in God. We can rest. We can find refuge. And we can respond and go. That's the fourth. That's the last point. God is great, so we can go. So let me read Isaiah. Let me read Isaiah's response. So he's been atoned for. And it says, And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. So Isaiah goes from fear and terror to forgiveness and response. It's a night and day response, right? I mean, he's, woe is me. I'm done. To all of a sudden, he's like, ooh, ooh, I'm in. Send me. He's seen the majesty and power and glory. He's felt the grace, love, and forgiveness. And now the response is, I'm in. Wherever you go, I go. Wherever you want, I want. That's the gospel. Woe, grace, go. And that rhymed. Because all of a sudden for Isaiah, his agenda is gone. I'm in. Send me. And here's the thing though, we kind of, Missionaries, that's like the missionary one, right? Yeah, here I am, send me. And they got, you know, they send out their newsletters at the end. It's on the, you know, their mugs. And... But, we, but, but we kind of forget the rest of Isaiah 6. Because that's where the majesty, and grace, and comfort, and trust in God's sovereignty plays in. Because Isaiah's mission description isn't exactly like, you're going to go hang out with little kids, it's going to be fun. You're going to build a house. Now listen to what listen now listen, listen to the rest of the description, and you're going to see how God's majesty, sovereignty, His grace and love, and the, our response of "We're in, let's go." Those two things anchor the third. 
So Isaiah uh, 6, let's start uh, back to verse 9. And he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Oh, okay. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and land is desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. We kind of stop at Isaiah 8 and you're like, I see why now. But, but here's where he still goes. He's still, he's still in. He may not even comprehend all that is working in there, all that, the fact that Judah is going to be captive by Babylon and it's, that their people are going to get taken away and it's going to be a consequence. It's going to be God's grace of punishing the people for their disobedience, for them not being a blessing to all the nations, for them looking more like all the nations, not being set apart like, like God, is not representing God. But he's still going, okay. You know why? Because when God calls us stuff, sometimes he's going to call us the stuff that we're like, what? Maybe the culture is set up against us. Maybe it goes against the popular tide. But when you understand, he's in control. He is sovereign. He is majestic. He is full of love and mercy towards me. I'm in. You're in. It's not a fine line thing. I'm in so long as it's really cool. So long as it's really easy. I'm in so long as I agree with the principles of it. You go, I'm in because of who you are and that you love me. Changes everything. Changes how we live, changes how we think, changes how we speak. It's humbling, it's motivating. It should crush us of who we are and our pride and should encourage us in his love and his guidance. So what now? You go, I, 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 well, how, okay, Lois, I, mean, I want to I be able to see that truth. But do I need to be lifted up into the throne like Isaiah then? Is that what you're telling me? That hasn't happened yet. There's some ways that God has been gracious to give us so that we may see his glory. Maybe we saturate ourselves in his glory. Let me just give you three real quick and we'll be done. The word. So we saturate ourselves in God's word in a way that sees, and here's the thing, read, how we read the word matters. Ryan, elders here, train that up in me, and I know train up in you, and I pray I'm giving that to redemption. How you read the word is important. You should seek to see who God is first more than what you need. When you approach the word, God, reveal your glory, not God, give me something to use. So the word, we need to move from looking for nuggets for our lives to searching for God's glory through each page. Because in the word, we see God, like Isaiah will later say, a God who who holds the whole span of the universe in his hands and who washes feet in the New Testament, who speaks and and things are created out of nothing. 
who loves and pursues rebels like us. So we need the word. We need to saturate ourselves in the word, looking for God's glory. Peter said, we saw God's glory. We saw Jesus. We saw the light. We saw, heard the, on the mountain, the transfiguration. We were there. We saw it. And you know what? We got something better. You got something better. You got this. He said, I saw it, but this is even better. So the word, community. Second thing, community. We need people to remind us of God's glory, his love and care, who call us out when we're stressed, when we're worried, when we're frustrated. We need people who are willing to pray for us. We also need people willing to go. When we are worried and stressed out about something, we need people to remind us of that majesty, of his greatness, of his grace. And maybe rebuke us of our sin of wanting to control, of our sin of worry, of frustration. We need community. We need people in our lives that know us, that can speak into us. And we need people to speak into others. And prayer. Here's the, here's, the, here's the cool thing. I think everyone, there is something in us, and again, we suppress it, Romans 1 says. There is something in us that says God is sovereign, though. Every church, every church reveals that they believe God is sovereign. Now, I know some churches, those that don't. Do they pray? Do they pray? What is prayer? Prayer is our communication, our realization that there is someone sovereign in control and us going to him. Prayer is our confession that God is sovereign and he is gracious. He is in control and he is also loving us and wants to hear from us. So prayer. One of the first things when I, when I have a counseling session, someone says, I am stressed, I am worried, and I can, I can see it in them. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? It's like I could put $20 down and it's not good right now. Psalm 8, it's a prayer. Word, community, prayer. God gives us those things. He graces, he gifts us those things to remind us that we're not in control that he is great, so we do not have to be in control. He is great, so we don't have to worry. He is great, so we can rest. He is great, so we can go. Word, community, prayer. So let's do that last one right now. Let's pray. Father God, you're good. You're holy. You're righteous. You are our creator. You are our sustainer. You're our rock. You're our refuge. You're our fortress. You're our judge. You're our savior. You are everything. Father, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your majesty this morning. There would be a sense of self-forgetfulness going on in our hearts and minds as we are just caught up in who you are. We'd be encouraged and comforted that that majesty is also filled with love, mercy, and care for us. We'd be humbled by that truth, that undeserving truth. And we'd be motivated, Lord, to rest in you, 
We encourage to rest in you. And Lord, we would be motivated to go tell others about this majestic, gracious God. I pray Desert Springs Church would be a church who takes the scriptures, goes deep, and then goes, as the, as the saying goes, goes broad with this message. Knowing you're in sovereign control of it all and that we deliver this message, you'll do with it as you please. We know you're good and gracious. So we would trust you. So that would motivate us to go. It encourage us to rest. It would allow us to forget ourselves and get lost in you. And it would remind us that we are loved. Pray this for Desert Springs. Pray this for me. I pray this for Redemption Church. I pray this for all those people that you've created in your image. I pray for everyone to see this one day. I pray we will be messengers for this. In Jesus' name, amen.